It's not just about trying to protect the company contractually, but it's also about helping the client company, the acquirer, understand how they can run the business after the fact, after they buy it. When they get the keys to the car, do you know where the engine is? Hello, hello, hello. I'm super excited for you to join us today for Season 5, Episode 67 of the Afternoon Tea Podcast, where we chat with the founders of Canada's most interesting and successful companies. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Chris Hobbs. I'm the president and co-founder of TTT Studios, a software innovation studio headquartered here in Vancouver, B.C., Canada. My favorite part of the job has been meeting so many of these fantastic founders from all across our great nation. If you enjoy listening half as much as I enjoy chatting with these folks, I promise you're in for a treat. Next week, speaking of treats, we have the Alan Lau, a founder of Wattpad. But first, this week's guest is Michael Stevens, partner at Faskin. Combine this with today's Canadian startups that we love, and I would love to introduce you to an awesome Toronto-based startup, Lydia AI. We'll hear a little bit about Lydia AI from co-founder Christina Kai, who also pitches in with a great question for Michael. But now, let's introduce Michael as he shares stories about valuable lessons he learned about due diligence when selling weapons-grade uranium how the seed of his career as a lawyer began offering advice from the dorm room, and how his role has evolved over the years since. Don't forget to subscribe, like, or do all those things that we podcasters love. But now, Michael Stevens is the leading information technology law partner in the Vancouver office of Faskin, a recognized leader in the British Columbia technology ecosystem and a dedicated advocate for clients. Mike represents companies in all stages of their development, with a particular focus on early stage entrepreneurs, startups, and emerging growth companies. An experienced mergers and acquisitions and securities lawyer, Mike counsels emerging growth companies from their foundation all the way to an IPO or an exit event. Additionally, he also advises founders, executives, and company boards on corporate issues, business strategy, fundraising, board governance, and strategic transactions. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Great to be here. Oh, this is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. Well, you know what? I'm I'm personally a client of Faskin, you know, but I, I have to say, first and foremost, mostly, Faskin is not paid. This is not a this is not a paid thing. This is because I know you have a you know you have a lot to share. But tell me about Faskin and how you started with them. Great. Okay, so Faskin is a is a um, a, a large law firm. We're uh, international in scope, but uh, our mothership is Toronto. Um, big office in Toronto, big office in um, in Montreal, and then offices all over Canada, with an office in London and an office in Johannesburg. So we're 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 well situated around the world. And as far as Canadian law firms go, the ones that haven't merged with mega firms, uh, global mega firms, we're pretty well situated um, globally. But here in Vancouver, uh, Faskin has 140 lawyers, um, and we're a rough split between litigators. So the lawyers that go off to court and defend people's interests uh, and business lawyers like myself who are generally more involved in contracts and transactional work. So we're sort of a 50-50 split there. In Vancouver, uh, we are 25 lawyers in the emerging tech space, which I believe is the largest emerging tech group uh, west of Toronto. Um, in Canadian uh, law firms. So that's Faskin. We uh, work, we're sort of 
we'll work with any type of company and we have, um, you, you know, in our group in, internally in, in the emerging tech group, we have IP protection and patent protection lawyers. We have um, commercial lawyers that work on IT contracts and commercial contracts. We have lawyers like myself that will do corporate finance deals and M&A deals and help companies grow and scale from ideation really through to IPO. So and when, and when, did, when did you start with Faskin? So I started with Faskin in 2016. So it's it's uh, was my sixth six year anniversary uh, last week. Uh, so I've been with Faskin, yeah, for six years, and I've been a partner there the whole time. Uh, previous to that, I was um, had a, a stint at um, uh, a firm called Dentons in Vancouver, where I was the the head of a very fledgling emerging tech group in their Vancouver office. Um, it was me and a dog and, and a guy called Jeff, who you know, uh, yeah. and and so uh, we, we did our best. But eventually, Faskin just uh, offered a platform that was so compelling. So we we moved our practice there. We just felt we could help more people with a bigger platform. So that's why we moved. Yeah, it makes sense. And I should say, Jeff Pedlow is awesome too. So yeah, just, I mean, just fantastic. You're lucky. You're lucky to be working together. It's a one-two punch of great, great uh, energy together. Well, you know, one question I get with a lot of startups, because I get a lot of, you know, young um, startups asking me very, very basic questions. This is about as basic questions you can get is, does a startup need a lawyer's help with incorporation or is it mundane enough to tackle it alone? Great question. And, and I think the quick answer to that is they do not. The, 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 I always say this to clients that there's as many types of startups in the world as there are founders, right? And so every single specific company is different and has different wants and needs and objectives. And when there are some clients that come to us to help them through ideation and incorporation, but those tend to be clients or companies that need structuring advice early because they're about to take on you know a large round of financing or they're about to joint venture or they're about to uh, you know vend in some intellectual property so there has to be some legal rigor to the structure whereas if you're going to build a SaaS product and you're busy hustling and bootstrapping and doing all of the work um, you need to do to you know on the customer discovery and the product market fit and the minimum viable product development and um, you know testing and, and all that sort of stuff you can do with your own wallet and your own, the, your resources that you have at your disposal and you can get to a stage before you actually start to to um, interact with customers on a commercial level then you really don't need a law and you're not planning on raising big funds from third-party investors then the incorporation uh, can be done very simply online. Uh, there's a website on the gov government of BC uh, in the, you know, sort of the banner of government of British Columbia uh, and you know, pay, I think it's $380 and you reserve a name and you, you go from there. Now the, you know, sort of the, the there's a but there and the but is, um, you know, frequently we find that when and if that company ever gets to the stage that they want to start raising funds or, contracting with customers the that the underlying legal structure needs some fixing mm -hmm. because it's it's rare that you'll get it exactly right if you don't have the proper training um and but exactly exactly right is probably not the right way to put it it <laughs> won't be fit completely fit for purpose sure. uh when you when you're ready to scale out of that stage so you'll you will have a little bit 
of handholding and, and going back over things you've already done to fix and, and, and make better and a little bit more um, um, investor and customer ready. But, but having said that, the quick answer is if you just want to stand up a corporate vehicle, that is something you can absolutely do by yourself. So would you find if, you know, and I, th I think I already know the answer, but I'm going to ask it because I really want to know still, do you find that the majority of the people who are doing an incorporation through a law firm such as Faskin, they probably, this isn't their first pony and they just want to get it done quickly and properly because they've learned. Um, and maybe that's a learning we could think about. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I, I think if it's not your first rodeo, I do believe that you have at, at some stage done the sort of the risk reward assessment and thought, well, I could spend $1,500 and get it done right. And then put all the documents in a drawer and not have to think about them again for 18 months. That's a nice feeling. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and you balance that against the, well, I don't want to spend $1,500 and I, I, you know, I think I don't need a lawyer for now, but the, the, the balance is really, do I want to pay to get it done now? Or do I want to pay to get it fixed later? Yeah. Because which it, is more expensive it, and it can be that's the thing right because what you end up finding is that you know along the way because you've got to move fast and adapt and adopt and 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 and, and sprint really that you end up and this is you know totally acceptable in the startup space you end up doing a lot of things cutting a lot of deals moving a lot of pieces around on the chessboard um, before actually, you know, knowing uh, what the end game is. So mm. I think, you know, it, it does help to have that structure in place and in a drawer where it gathers dust for 18 months, mm -hmm. uh, because when you do need it, it's there and it's perfect. And usually, and, <laughs> and the investors will appreciate it and will allow you to move quickly to the next phase and not get mired in paperwork at a stage where you're ready to launch, right? So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of a risk reward kind of assessment, but the people that have been through the process before typically will seek out a lawyer and just say, you know, dot I's, cross T's, do what you do, put it away and let's go build and scale. Yeah, I know. I know. You know, when I when I found I've, I founded a couple of companies over my life, lifetime, and um, um, you know, always let's say cutting corners, which is the, you know the basic way of doing it. Um, but at my maturity now, because I have realized that we've had to work backwards, and we've had really good luck, you know, um, working with with your team at Faskin to kind of not correct. I wouldn't say correct things. So I don't think they're set right, but just you know, make them make them future proof uh, in a way that we didn't yeah. we didn't envision. Um, when, when we started and, and, and definitely now at my, you know, my, my old man age here, uh, I would definitely engage with someone like yourselves because I mean, that amount of money isn't that much, um, at the end of the day to, for the value of getting it correct at the first time. Um, we, here, here's another, uh, question around founding then. Do you ever suggest that people, you know, do it outside of multiple provinces? Like, is it, is it just, just BCs enough or should you be looking at founding in other provinces as well? It's a, it's a great question. We, we do get asked that. And there's, there's common misnomers that if you, if you incorporate a company that's federally incorporated, that you, you somehow get some quasi trademark protection, whereas, whereas you actually don't. I mean, the, the reality is if you incorporate this, Canada has, you know, every single province and territory has its own corporate corporation statute, corporate statute, where you can incorporate a company in that province. And then you've got a federally incorporated company. They both do the same thing. But the federally incorporated company allows you to have effectively name protection. So it allows you, if you wanted, you know, uh, two tall totems Canada, uh, and you want, and you had that as a corporate uh, federal corporation, and you wanted to incorporate two tall totems BC, no one could sit and squat on that name, mm -hmm. right? 
So it, it just gives you, uh, it gives you name protection, but no, there's no intellectual property aspect to it. And, and so when it comes to where do you incorporate uh, sometimes, though not often, there are um, founder groups that come together that are international, right? Mm -hmm. And that can be one of the bigger determining factors because some of the provinces have residency requirements in their corporate statute. BC mm -hmm. does not. So mm -hmm. you can have four directors, um, you know, founders from all over the world, none of whom are Canadian, none of whom have, of whom have ever even visited Vancouver, and they can have a BC corporation. That is not the case in, in provinces like Ontario, uh, where there are, um, you know, there are director residency requirements. So you need to have one third of the board, I think, uh, I can't remember, I've looked at the Ontario statute in a while, but one third of the board, I think, needs to be Ontario resident or Canadian resident. So, um, so it's different. And, and there's, there's a few issues around the edges on which province you'd choose. But mm -hmm. effectively, if you were to incorporate in British Columbia, and you were going to do business in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, you can do what we call extra provincially register. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you would have a registration in each of those other provinces that would allow you to do business under your corporate name, all the while your, your actual corporate vehicle, the entity itself, the box in which all your employ employment agreements, IP and everything else lives would still be in Vancouver and British Columbia. Interesting. Interesting. Is there is there is it just because the provinces have uh, a joint agreement to allow for that? Basically, uh, no. It it it's. I don't think it's a joint agreement. I I just think it's what what every single corporate statute has a provision in it that'll say mm. we will recognize um, the any company that extra provincially registers in this jurisdiction. So they and, it's, yeah, it's it's across the corporate statute. Sure, and 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 I suppose you know we're going to go across across provinces, I guess, because Quebec has such a different legal structure. Is that one a bit more of a difficult beast? Um, um, yeah, we, it's a great question. Um, Quebec, obviously, is one of the few jurisdictions in the world uh, that we that we call a hybrid jurisdiction. There's there's mm -hmm. a couple of other notable ones like Scotland and South Africa, where they're a, effectively a hybrid of Na the Napoleonic code mm -hmm. and, uh, and common law. Um, and, and Quebec, I mean, mo most of the uh, companies I know and I've worked for uh, do not extra provincially register in Quebec, not because um, they, uh, you know, they have any aversion to it or because it's dramatically different, the laws there, but because they just don't do business there. Um, and so um, I, it's not an experience I've had. Uh, mm -hmm. I do know on the security side that some folks will hesitate to try to raise funds in Quebec uh, because there are some translation requirements, um, mm. French translation requirements, and the language laws can be somewhat of a barrier sometimes because what you don't want to do is have to publish a 300-page prospectus in French as well as English uh, because mm. you can't just Google translate a prospectus. It's got to be translated by a lawyer who's qualified to translate. And so uh, legally translating a hideously expensive process. So mm. it's not that I, it's not that Quebec is, is a pariah and nobody wants to do business there. It's just, it's not, never been something that's really happened for me. And, and also, you know, in the technology space, um, what we've noted is that, you know, everything's virtual really anyways. And mm. does anybody ever really know who their customers are? I mean, it, 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 if you're, if you're in the SaaS space or in the blockchain space or, or your customers are not necessarily um, sitting in a desk in an office tower across the street from you, 
you know, it, that where you uh, are registered to conduct business tends to be a bit of a fluid discussion. Mm. Mm. You know, I, I want I want to get back to that 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 concept of you know not having residency requirements in British Columbia. Does is does that ever allow for any monkey business that you've ever come across, or is that just a, a loose and simple law? Uh, any sorry, say the name of the business. A, any monkey, any monkey business. Like oh. is that you know people taking that yeah. to an advantage maybe internationally? I mean, we hear about you know the the things that go through you know for example the casinos and all that. I mean, it's yeah, totally different. But does that allow for this to happen? Interesting question. So a few years back, we instituted in British Columbia a transparency legislation so mm -hmm. that even even though the, um, you know, the directors of a Canadian of a British Columbia company do not need to be BC resident, uh, you have to disclose to the registrar of companies who, uh, who owns, you know, your shares, right? So it, it can't and then it can't just be Oh, it's a number co from the Seychelles. It has to be okay. Well, who owns the number co in the Seychelles? Oh, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a number co in Curacao. Okay, well, who owns the number co in Curacao? Right. So, so we do mm -hmm. have, and I think this is all part of that process where the government is trying to crack down on unlawful activity and money laundering, and and that's all something that I, you know, is is very administratively burdensome. But the logic pattern is very sound because we want to stop. Um, this sort of activity from flowing in and out of our economy here in British Columbia, sure. of course, and, and we should all aspire to do that. Um, the residency requirement, frankly, in my experience, has not been utilized in that context. It really, um, it's, it's, um, it, it could be because of the types of companies I work for. Um, technology is, is probably not, you know, tech, emerging tech companies are probably not a great money laundering vehicle. I don't no. know, but <laughs> it just, it just, <laughs> it, it just hasn't really come up in, in my practice at any time. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the idea that they're not physically present in, in British Columbia um, has never really posed much of, a, of an issue. And I've never really had uh, cause to stop and think about a particular board and sure. wonder about their bona fide. But, but that's because, like I said, all the companies I'm working for are generally young entrepreneurs scrapping, you know, maxing out their credit cards, eating ramen <laughs> for two years, you know, trying to build something, right? Um, so it, it could be different in a different practice area. I don't know, but it's a great question. I dig that. I was a macaroni and cheese guy myself, but my, okay. my, my kids are more into the ramen. So I, I, I definitely, I definitely appreciate that. Well, let, let's, <laughs> let's talk a little bit on the, the M&A side. Um, how does a typical M&A deal start? Are you, um, does, how, how does that start? Are you involved heavily in the early stages of the M&A activity or do you just come in to seal the deal? Like how, how does that usually happen on the, on the legal side or the representation side? Okay. Yeah. Great question. So I'll try to explain it by sort of bifurcating the two general types of deals that you would have that come together. One of them could be on the one hand, you have the strategic deal where a buyer approaches the seller, the target company and says, you're going to be, you know, we're, we're going to build a better mousetrap if we get your springs. Um, mm -hmm. So we're going to buy you rather than invent you and, and try to build you internally. So mm -hmm. buy versus build, you know, strategic transaction, the, the deal kind of comes out of almost nowhere, although maybe there's been some communication, maybe they've had a partnership, maybe one is a customer of another and they've become close. The CEOs have become close during that relationship. That's kind of how those 
deals come together and strategic deals are not the only type that happen on that side. And then the other side is where you have a marketed deal. So mm -hmm. those are the two big, the, the two types of, of deals that determine my involvement. And the marketed deal is typically where you're approached by a company that wants to put itself up for sale mm. and wants to find a suitor. And um, that could happen for any reason, you know, founders are done, they want out, um, uh, the valuations are crazy on that, in that vertical and they want to capitalize. Um, uh, the venture fund that has invested is, is ready to, to roll its fund over and needs to exit, right? Mm -hmm. So the board is getting pressure to liquidate and, and, and kind of move on. Uh, private equity company wants to come in, um, split the company up into lots of different divisions, and then and then exit on all of, all of them. You know, there's lots of reasons why you have a marketed deal, and that typically involves some form of an advisor. Mm -hmm. So, we, like an investment banker or or you know an M and A advisory uh, firm of some variety. In Vancouver, um, that market is is uh, is is not super highly developed, but there's some really smart, capable people in that, in that, that industry. The, the question that, that we get asked frequently on the marketed side is, you know, how do we expand our reach? How do we get the most suitors into the door that we can so that we maximize the potential exit value, right? That's mm -hmm. kind of, it's sort of like a real estate, you know, deal. Like how many people can this realtor get through the door? Uh, mm -hmm. of our house and, and, you know, maximize our sale price. So those two types, so you get the sort of the strategic kind of deal comes out of nowhere, uh, phone the lawyer, we need to get the terms like hammered out. And then mm -hmm. you have, and then you have the sort of the marketed deal on the marketed deal. We're involved very early because they want to know, you know, are we ready to do, to have the due diligence done on us? Uh, are we, you know, can we put together a pro forma, term sheet cap table that will show you know what our waterfall looks like what our you know preferred terms are and what is our alamo right like how far will we be willing to be pushed on price on you know earn out hold back you know the indemnity cap all those sorts of terms so you sort of pre you that you pre-facto all that into your deal and then you go out and sell it right and so you're involved very early on not quite as early as the bankers but usually pretty early on on the, on the side of the deal where it kind of comes out of nowhere, mm -hmm. a strategic partner comes in and they start talking price, those deals, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Sometimes where the founders are pretty inexperienced in that space, because let's, let's not forget, like an M&A event is kind of like buying your house. Like mm -hmm. you might have two or three of those in your lifetime, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people maybe only have one. A lot of people have none. Um, so some of the founders that don't have a big network of sort of M&A seasoned professionals around them uh, will come to the lawyer pretty early on to sanity check a lot mm. of things because although we you know typically are not business advisors, we have a lot of pattern recognition within our world. And so we're able to spot issues and, and things that will come up that will cause the deal to have friction or problems in the future and, and try, to, try to deal with that earlier, earlier on. So they'll come to us and ask us to help them get the steps in place. Uh, those of them that are more experienced or believe that they need to just get the price that they see that they like nailed down, will just sign any piece of paper and mm -hmm. it'll be called the LOI 
and then we'll get emailed the LOI. We'll vomit a little bit because of how loose it is. And then we'll get to get to the, the dirty business of draft, trying to take this cocktail napkin of terms and, you know, make it into a, a you know, very robust, protective uh, share purchase agreement that protects the, you know, the, the sellers, the vendors, and uh, make sure that we align everybody's interests in a single moment in time. Mm -hmm. The important reason to lawyer up. That that's definitely definitely yeah. more than a napkin. That's more than a napkin. Well, do you find in Canada now? I mean, I, I, just because I'm seeing these deals, do you find that there's a lot more international deals who are coming in and buying Canadian assets or companies, or is it is it just kind of it's always been the same in the on the tech side? Uh, yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, so we were up until about four or five months ago, we were definitely seeing more inbound interest in Canadian companies. Um, um, than before. And I think that that's really interesting because what that was an I think an indication of was the valuations of Canadian startups on the, on the financing side were really starting to balloon. And so what you do get within that sort of um, paradigm is you, you get sort of ballooning M&A uh, multiples as well. And so people in Canada, when you see extra zeros on the sale price get really interested and, and, because of the scale that a lot of those Canadian companies were growing to, realistically, the only people with bank balances those that big are south of the border, right? And so you, you almost, there was Canadian companies growing to a scale where, you know, they were too big to sell, right? And, and I don't know if that was why we had, you know, a bunch of tech IPOs in 2020, 2021, uh, because these companies, the, 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 the valuations were so high, the, the EBITDA multiples were at, mm -hmm. you know, astronomical. So mm -hmm. the only exit, you know, that they could get would be the IPO. I don't know. I, I don't know the answer mm -hmm. to that, but I, I, I do think that, um, that we are experiencing the M&A market has, has quietened down quite a lot in the last four or five months. But, but I do believe that um, uh, we were seeing a lot more inbound uh, potential purchasers for sure. Yeah, but that but that slowdown is global. That's not 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 just a Canadian thing. I think that's just a reflection of the uh, the recession and the the, the cooling down. Uh, you know of of uh, well how the Fed's been dealing with things and uh, inflation and all that. And uh, hopefully hopefully we'll see things return. Um, but I think it'll be a year or two before uh, any of that. You know, wave my magic economist hat that I'm not wearing right now. Um, well, on the topic of the M and A process, our startup of the week because we have our Canadian startups that we love, and this is a great one, um, Lydia AI, and I sat down to chat with the founder of Lydia AI, Christina Kai, who managed to find a few minutes in her busy schedule to tell us about Lydia AI, and she has a question for you, Michael, about your experience in this area of M&A, and here's Christina. Elevator pitch time. Tell me a little bit about your company, and what do you do? Thank you so much, Chris. I'm really happy to be here. My name is Christina. I'm the co-founder and CEO at Here Olivia AI, where we help life and health insurance companies use new sources of alternatives, new sources of data to really figure out how do we uh, provide more instant and accurate risk assessment so that more people can buy insurance without needing to go through a medical exam. That is fantastic. I guess we're removing frictions, removing frictions. Well, tell me a little bit about your founding team. So our founding team, we actually started out of the University of Toronto. There is myself and my co-founder, who's actually now based in uh, Taiwan. So we have two teams out, one in Toronto and one in Asia. And when we first started, it was actually very simple motivation. It was, 
hey, let's have, we have a piece of technology, natural language processing. Um, we have some algos. Let's just do a startup. It's very simple. Um, arguably the wrong way because you went tech first instead of so problem first. Mm -hmm. So we had this like tech solution, like tech solution. And back then we thought, hey, you know what? We're just gonna build a really cool NLP startups and Google's gonna come buy us in like two years. Mm -hmm. Right. Every startup dream did not happen clearly. And so we went to market with these algos and we really thought through. It took us quite a while to really uh, realize that, hey, you know, your your technology is not really worthwhile. It needs to solve a problem in order to have a reason in order to generate value and create actually um, like like drive value for the world, right? Mm -hmm. So we went from a technology to understanding, okay, what problem are we trying to solve in the industry? Then from then on, where does that problem actually have the most amount of impact? Then from, from there on, what does the implementation of that actually look like? And the space and the time between each of these points were actually, was actually marked in years, especially because we are in the insurance sector. It mm -hmm. is a ginormous but quite outdated industry that takes time to actually get them around to using new data, using machine learning and all of that. So all of that took us years of learning and hard grinding to really bring us to where we are today. Fantastic. Fantastic. Hard work. There's there's a good lesson right there. And I, I completely yeah. appreciate that. Well, can you share with me what I call like a big win that, uh, you know, of Lydia AI's journey so far? Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I think the, the most recent big win we had was like Sunday where our team went camping and we all packed up properly in pouring rain. Mm -hmm. um, everybody got home safe, albeit with very wet gear. And if you guys were here in like Toronto on Sunday, it was it was raining pretty badly. So that's a pretty big thing. Um, one recent uh, one recent win here is that we convinced uh, actually reinsurance partners to accept a health risk score in order to uh, uh, underwrite some people with pre-existing conditions without raising rates. That's super exciting for us because it's really aligned with our mission of ensuring more people going after the next billion people and being able to actually give affordable insurance to people who were previously rejected using our health risk score was a really big win that we've had. Um, so that was like quite recent for us. But overall, I think for me personally, one of the big wins, and we were counting this the other day, like including co-op students and everybody who has come shared a chapter of their career with Lydia AI and left, we've had almost like 80 to 100 people, like 80, like including co-op students, like 80, 90 people actually at one point of their careers call Lydia AI their home. Like it's awesome. in a hundred, almost a hundred resumes out there. Like that for me is like something that I'm really proud of. Actually, I, I never, you never thought like that. I never thought like that going in there, but I think, um, like the, the the team we've built here is like a huge win, right? And actually being, for me personally, having been able to create a problem set and an environment where people actually write into their resume and it becomes a part of their career journey that actually gets them to where they need to be. That's something that I'm actually really proud of, really, really happy about. I love that. I love that. And I actually can say where you said earlier about the camping in the rain, I witnessed through pictures just prior to this chat, how you were smoking salmon by the side of a fire. And I got to say, I think Lydia AI and team can pretty much do anything. If you can, if you can get that, that, that meat cooked just from the side of a fire, I am impressed. I am impressed. <laughs> you said 20 people on a live, off a live fire because the barbecue grill 
died. Like not quite, but like 18 people off a live fire. So, That's you know, incredible. we went like cave, cave human here. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Well, can you share maybe a lesson that you've learned along the way that you kind of wish you understood when you started? Oh yeah, totally. Just get over yourself. And what I mean by that is, I think when I first started, um, it's right out of school. So you, you carry with you a lot of like, shame and what it means like and, and that that manifests in different people in different ways for me specifically it manifested in keeping my head down and not asking for help and just doing mm. my own thing and mm. that went on for like two three years I would say probably a little longer than that where I finally kind of get got over the fact that I didn't feel like I was good enough and started mm. reaching out connecting with people and then you realize you know what human beings are all the same you all want the same thing you're all scared of the same things you're all worried about you're all insecure about all of this and if we can be very real and raw about it you actually find a community of people who are who would love to actually support each other through a lot of that and for me like I wish you know 21 year old me just got over yourself like got over all of, like get over yourself for lack of a better way of saying it but yeah, it really is just get over yourself. Like you're supposed to be uncomfortable. You're supposed to be all of these things. And if you can realize that you are just the same as every other person trying to do something, startup, not startup, job, no job, whatever the struggles are, like at the end of it, we have the shared humanity that is, you know, bigger than all of us. That's, that is fantastic. Get over yourself to Lamond. I totally dig that. Well, as you know, we chat with some of Canada's most successful founders on Afternoon Tea, and our guest this week is Michael Stevens, a technology M&A lawyer with Faskin. What question would you like to ask him about your journey? Uh, for an M&A lawyer, I'd love to see of all the things that he's observed, what are startups least prepared for when they start going through an M&A and how does that change as they scale? Great, that's a great question. So I think there's three main areas that in my experience, companies, when they go through the M&A process tend to get caught uh, with their pants down a little bit on. And those are to do with intellectual property, um, with the cap table, particularly, you know, stock options and, and founder shares and, and, and things of that nature. And then the third thing is really just if it's a software play, just how safe is the software, right? How, you know, has it, have any penetration tests been done? Have you done a, a source code audit? What, you know, what, what can you show from a due diligence perspective about how robust your software is? Those are, those are three things that, that sometimes M&A lawyers that are not tech special, specific or they haven't had a lot of tech special, special, um, specialization uh, will miss. They just won't even think of as part of the whole process. So um, the thing that that is problematic as you scale within those three is really, it's really the cap table one, right? Mm -hmm. Because obviously as you grow and scale and you're hiring 30 new people every two weeks and there's <laughs> stock option grants and you've got somebody down in the States managing a CARTA, uh, you know, mm -hmm. you know, program for you, but then you've got your Canadian lawyers trying to keep up with your central securities register, which if it's mm -hmm. a Canadian company is really the document of truth, even mm -hmm. though everybody thinks south of the border that Carta is sent to us from on high, um, it's, <laughs> you know, Canadian uh, purchasers will just ignore it. Um, mm -hmm. So you've got this real tension and it typically around the cap table that if you don't get that hygienic and up-to-date and explicable and you've got all sorts of issues tax issues on that that emanate from the united states if you have a large proportion 
of U.S. employees, which a lot of Canadian startups who grow through this, you know, who are scaling will tend to have uh, just because of the, you know, the, the, the talent pools that are available on both sides of the border. And so those are the, really the three and the big one that is problematic and needs to get grappled with early, early on, way before you sign the LOI is the cap table, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're trying to fix the cap table while you're trying to draft a share purchase agreement and a mm -hmm. disclosure schedule, and, and you're trying to disclose that, you know, in big red writing, our cap table is screwed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, that's a really big one because when you think of the M&A process, leaving aside I don't want to be too nuanced, but leaving aside the idea of an asset purchase, if it's a deal where the potential purchaser wants to buy 100% of your share capital and you can't tell them where all those shares reside, that's a, that's a bad for That's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, speak, speaking of the shares, just because this is another question I should have asked it actually in the founding of the company, but what do you typically recommend for an ESOP? Uh, in what sense? I mean, we like in terms of like the size or the type yeah. or well, the percentage, yeah, so, percentage or you know, if yeah, you're, if, so, from the founding of a company. Yeah, from well, from founding. Okay, well, you know, again, there's as many types of startups as there are founders, but I, mm -hmm. I think that you, you know, uh, rule, you know, the rules that we would typically abide by, you know, sort of ten percent to twenty percent. Sometimes early stage, um, the conversation is 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 thus. Hi, do you mm -hmm. think you're going to need to hire in the next 12 to 18 months? Uh, will you be able to pay cash? Do you think you will be pref you know, preferably compensating in equity? You know, what does that look like? Do, you know, and then you, then you dive a little deeper. Um, mm -hmm. Sales teams tend to like equity more than cash. They love mm -hmm. cash. Everybody loves cash. But equity sort of aligns the sales team with yeah. the founders a bit more, right? Because they think, well, if, if I'm helping grow the bottom line and therefore the valuation, like what I'm holding is, is gold, right? So, mm -hmm. so they're incentivized. So, so it really is like how many people outside the founder team are you going to need? How do you fancy uh, compensating them? And, and, and how, so how much do you want to do? And so the 10 to 20, once you get the 10 laid down, you, it can, it can tend to creep up when you bring on, third-party investors because the VCs uh, may come in and say, well, geez, you know, we love your business plan, but we really want you to accelerate it. Mm -hmm. And so they'll say 10% stock options is really not going to allow you to accelerate your hiring compensation package, incentivization, and your scale. So, mm -hmm. you know, could you, when we close our financing, increase it by five to 10%. So mm -hmm. that, that'll, that's the other side of that conversation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, generally general rule, maybe 10 to 20%, but uh, a lot depends on what, you know, your investors tell you and, and also what your needs are at any given time. I, we tend to not bother getting the ESOP started out of the gate because mm -hmm. it's just five to 750 bucks at, you could hold on to and, mm -hmm. you know, maybe buy a foosball table with for the break room, right? <laughs> you know, like it, it just, it's just, you know, especially if you don't need it. Um, and, and the way we like to put companies together so that they're sort of founder and, and investor ready um, is that you can just take stuff like the ESOP 
and like clip it on like it's Lego, mm-hmm. right? Like everything becomes modular the way we, we incorporate the companies and get them ready. So the ESOP just becomes like a, you know, like a, an after an aftermarket, you know, Thule rack you stick on your Volkswagen. Uh, so you recommend basically not in the first founding stage, but actually kind of in the second second dilution sort of stage. Or yeah, third exactly. When you need, and which is typically when you need it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, no, it makes sense. Yeah. Well, and you know what? I should dumb this down. What is an ESOP? I should have probably asked oh, an that ESOP first. Great question. An ESOP <laughs> is an employee stock option plan. So that's the ability for the company to provide equity compensation to mm-hmm. Uh, em- typically employees, although you can provide them to advisors and consultants as well, um, mm-hmm. provided that you know you, you meet all securities law standards and that you you, you structure it properly. Um, and those will be options that will turn into shares at a given uh, uh, by a given date at a given price that you have mm-hmm. to pay for them in the future. And so it allows you to participate in the upside of the company even as an employee if the company sells. At a huge valuation down the road because you helped get it there. Mm, so everyone can benefit from the upside, basically, as as a team, and feel like you own the company a bit yourself, exactly. which is which is awesome because people seem to want to work harder when they feel like they're going to benefit from the uh, you know from from well just having their own blood and tears in there. Um, exactly. well, one one last M and A question because I'm actually quite interested in this one. Do you personally prefer to be on the merger side or the acquisition side of the deal, or does it matter? That's a really great question. They are quite different. I mean, you're mm-hmm. negotiating. So it's, it's really interesting. So you're negotiating the same terms. You're arguing about the same tosses, right? Mm-hmm. And you're arguing um, and and trying to you know carve out you know the other side of the same melon. <laughs> uh, but you but you know one of them I find more enjoyable for me as my personality. Mm-hmm. I like to explore investigate, get to know, you know, sort of immerse. And so what I always used to really like, especially as a junior lawyer, when I worked in the UK and all I did was like M&A deal after M&A deal um, was the due diligence, like Mm. going on the target company's website, reading the bios of the management team, reading what the company does, you know, Googling, you know, relationships that that company has with counterparties, joint venture parties, figuring out how the business runs mm. pinpoint and then within that sort of exercise pinpointing the sort of the soft points like the 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 points where there could be um issues right so mm-hmm. if 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 it's a an oil and gas company that's pumping oil to the to the pacific coast and there's a a, a you know a, a chunk of the pipeline missing that's probably a problem Right. Uh, you know, it's 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 finding all, all those things and highlighting them to the client as risk areas and then helping the client strategize about how to avoid those risk areas um, impacting the business. So it's not just mm-hmm. about trying to protect the company contractually, your, your client, the acquirer contractually, but it's also about helping the client company, the acquirer understand how they can run the business after the fact, after mm. they buy it. When they get the keys to the car, do mm-hmm. you know where the engine is? <laughs> right? And so so it's it's kind of, it's. I found that much more enjoyable. Having said that, it's a lot more, I, you know, I'm sure that if there's any M&A lawyers listening to this, they may have a diametrically opposed view, but I find that more interesting, but a lot more work. Mm. Um, and then, which is fine, you know, work mm-hmm. is work. But 
but um, but then on the on the if you're on the uh, uh, acquirer side, you're on the, tar- uh, the sorry the target side. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that is that is fun as well. Uh, but I find it it it, de- it depends on how much of the due diligence uh, questions and answers the client wants to handle themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, if they say, oh, I don't, don't even know what due diligence means, then you're in for a busy <laughs> couple of months. Um, but if the client wants to handle that themselves, then there's not I find not as much work. Mm-hmm. on the acquire side on the uh, on the target side but um but it is also quite fun if you're on the target side and it's an auction mm. so so you are helping the target that with the bankers you know the mm-hmm. investment bankers that who should be let through the gates and i that's kind of fun too but it's oh, a lot less work i find on the on the target side no, that that makes so much sense. Well, have you do you have any examples, maybe Canadian examples, of an M and A that went bad, and what would you have recommended for a different outcome? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So early on in my career, uh, I actually worked at a Canadian law firm in London, England, uh, and so it was a Canadian deal, but we were running it out of London because the acquirer was based in, um, it was actually based in Belgium. And what it was, was it was a Canadian company that had, you know, weapons grade uranium assets in Namibia. Okay. Like you do, uh, Mm -hmm. I guess. And, and so that deal was really, really interesting because it was an enormous deal, like lots of dollar for, I think the, I mean, this was 20 years ago and I think the Mm -hmm. purchase price was like 450 million Canadian. So it's like significant size. Uh, particularly for a Canadian deal and particularly 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was a young lawyer and, you know, the partner on the file was just like, yeah, you go run this deal. You'll be fine. Uh, and so, you know, I, I like challenges. So mm-hmm. we got the deal all papered up months of negotiating and drafting and research and consideration and hand wringing and flights here and there and meetings and Brussels and meetings in London and Paris. And it was very, you know, cool deal for a, 26 year old guy to, you know, from Kelowna to be on. But (laughs) one of the things that we probably should have paused and thought about was, you know, that, that price was really, really, really great. And we never really understood why, Mm. but we just, the client was like, don't care. Like, let's keep going. And so we never did on the client's instructions, much due diligence on the purchaser, but Mm. frequently we would say, this is a, you know, private, family company from Belgium what what like what is this all about why what are we doing like Mm -hmm. you know we didn't have a lot of the background and and so uh the client was like shut up the price is great keep moving and so anyways we, we we got all the way to the finish line we got our court order approving the transaction um you know millions of dollars of legal fees later the only thing left to do was for the company that was going to buy our client was to just wire the money mm-hmm. and the money never came. Ooh. And so the deal kind of went south and there was lawsuits and all sorts. And, and we found out after the fact that our, our phones were being tapped apparently by, you know, uh, CSIS and, and all sorts of stuff because they wanted to know what was happening with all this weapons grade uranium. Understandably. And why, yeah, understandably. <laughs> and why this shady Belgian 
family company was going to acquire this uh, business. Anyway, so long story short, the business, I, I, I can't recall because I left London shortly thereafter. Um, I don't know what came of the, the deal or the transaction or the, the lawsuits, but suffice to say, I think the, the message there was to, you know, trust your instincts, do the due diligence, don't let things um, distract you from ensuring that you know that you have the right deal right? Mm. Because price is one aspect, but it's only a singular uh, variable. What a bizarre, did you get to go to oh, well, Namibia is actually one of my favorite countries in Africa. Oh, did right you actually on. get to go to Windhoek? No, I'm afraid uh, not. Out. I'm afraid not. No, but, oh. uh, but we got lots of, we had lots of photo footage of the assets and it just looked like sand dunes right next to a beautiful blue ocean. And that was it. Yeah. A really cold ocean. I'll tell you that you don't want to get in as much as you think you do. Um, well, that's 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 super interesting. Well, what's what's more interesting to you, an IPO and RTO, which you know we'll talk nineties nineties in Vancouver is all RTOs, yeah. Yeah, or yeah. an M and A. Which one? Which one do you like to prefer? Uh, okay, so in my early career, I used to prefer the M and A for the reasons I'd already described. I like the idea of the investigation, the you know the diving deep, the providing like huge value to the client, not only legally but strategically. Mm -hmm. That that was a very fun part of my practice. But as I um, evolved in my practice, I, I started to enjoy the, the IPO a lot more because one of the things that differentiates the IPO from the end, well, there's a lot of things that differentiate the two, but the IPOs from a lawyer's perspective is much more collaborative. Like it, it's less adversarial. Uh, mm -hmm. Everybody, if they're aligned, will be pulling the same direction. There mm -hmm. are agreements and there are a tr there's a transfer of risk um, in, in the agreements and there's indemnities and there's, you know, war reps and warranties and promises made and covenants that have to be fulfilled. All those things still exist, but the, the, the whole process is a lot more collaborative and everybody is holding onto the oars and rowing in the same direction, because ultimately the point is for the investment bank and their legal team to do the due diligence necessary the auditors to do the audit and ensure that that effectively this company is appropriate to be listed on a stock exchange, right? And so, you know, obviously the regulators and the stock exchange have their roles as well as, as sort of guardians of the gate. Um, but that process um, is a lot more linear and collaborative than the M&A, which can be very choppy and up and down and people can get, mm -hmm. like, lose their patience and toys get thrown out of you know, prams and, and mm -hmm. people go to their corner and get broody for a little while. And then two weeks later, they phone and say, sorry, I said that. Or, well, I'm sorry, I said this. And, you know, let's be friends again, but you're, you know, we're not going to pay the price we thought we were. And okay. And then they'll fight again. And, you know, so it's, it's an M&A is, is a lot more, I find more adversarial. There's a lot more twists and turns. Um, and, you know, the IPO, it tends to be more collaborative. So I, I now prefer the IPO for that you know, for that reason, um, mm -hmm. the RTO is kind of a hybrid of the two, right? Because mm -hmm. it's still, it's still effectively an acquisition. Now the shells tend to be empty. So there's not really, hopefully. Much, yeah, <laughs> hopefully there's not really much to, to, to argue about, but mm -hmm. the thing about the RTOs that it, it makes them probably the, the, it, the, that type of transaction, the third on my list is, is that the cap table, the fusing of the cap tables and all the rules around that gets pretty messy. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, it's 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 an imperfect surgery sometimes, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of a lot of blood on the on the surgery room floor. 
um, with those types of deals. So it's just the cap table messiness that the RTO kind of puts me off. But you know, if sure. there's an RTO to do and the the company's pretty cool and the people are fun to work with, then that's that you know the risk is worth the reward. Does that make does that make a big difference for you? Because I think it would actually. Is if the people are more fun, is that who you want to work with? Huge. Yeah. If you're in a, in a, if you're in a transaction that, you know, is going to last three to six months and, mm. and you're going to be on conference calls with them at two in the morning. Uh, and, and basically they become your family, um, for those three to six months, it's much better to do it when you enjoy their company. Yeah. I, I love, <laughs> I love that you said two in the morning. Cause we were dealing with Alexander who's awesome. And, and we'd send her an email at like two in the morning. And she'd answer at two Oh one. And it's like, yeah. what are you doing? Do yeah. you just work for me? Wait, wait for your email. <laughs> she is incredible. She is incredible. Well, you know, back to back to IPOs. I'm going to stay away from RTOs because I think they're kind of a weird beast, to be honest. And probably if you're like looking at an MA from a company that wasn't RTO or something like that, you there's probably a lot of, you know, whoa, 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 whoa step back. Yeah. Let's think yeah, yeah. about this. Yeah. Um, but how many, how many IPOs have you personally been party to? And is there any memorable ones that you can share? Oh, easy, easily over 50, uh, um, easily, may, maybe more. Um, the most memorable one was one that I, when I first moved my practice back to Canada, uh, the partner on this file was a $750 million IPO. Um, and it was a really truncated timeline. Now it was a new co that was going to be a new, a new company that was going to be IPO'd um, they had the investment lined up. Basically, it was a it was a mortgage investment corporation. So <laughs> the investors plug the money into the corp, and then the corp goes and you know uh, places a bunch of mortgages, manages them, and then you know the return comes into the company, and all the investors get a uh, uh, basically a dividend play. It was a dividend sort of play, sure. uh, and there are certain reasons why mortgage investment corps are more tax efficient from an investment perspective. So <laughs> that's kind of the underlying thesis but the the i remember getting the email from the partner it was on halloween night <laughs> never good and i was a young and i was a young lawyer just moved back to canada my kids were really little my mm. wife was like what am i doing in this this city uh she's she's english so mm -hmm. i dragged her over here and uh the email came in and the partner said i can't help you much with this um you're gonna have to run with it uh, seven hundred fifty million dollar IPO. They want, um, they want to uh, have the IPO launched on December by December thirty first. That's so, awesome. yeah. Well, that was like that was like the worst thing ever. So, so it's basically incorporate the company, get all the organization done, get the prospectus drafted, get the securities commission to sign off on it, get all their comments, deal with all their comments pull in all the investor money, get everybody lined up, do all the due diligence uh, and everything. And we were still doing stuff on, you know, it's like Christmas Eve, Christmas day. Mm -hmm. It was, that was like crazy, but it was a huge, big mm -hmm. deal. And it, it really got me a lot of kudos, both within the, within the firm and mm -hmm. also with this particular client that said, this is our guy. He got a, he did something. It was a miracle. He got this done. Mm -hmm. um we gotta we gotta use them for everything going forward and so that was a really that was the making of my career really i think that transaction um mm -hmm. because at, at four years uh in to run a deal that big from start to finish um and, and you know go to toronto to close it because that was back when you used to do 
like physical closings yeah, and there was like 480 documents snaking <laughs> through two boardrooms yeah, and yeah, i had to yeah. like walk with the investment bankers like it, so they could check every and their lawyers could check every single one of these documents the the closing agenda alone was like 48 pages just oh the closing gosh. just the list of documents so crazy oh. anyway but but that was that was the highlight uh the low light and the highlight it, it ruined my life <laughs> But I'm sure I'm sure the wife and family was happy, ha definitely happy oh, after really? after that. Oh, and, and we'll just we'll just is is there a market that you prefer, like TSX Venture, uh, Nasdaq? Is there a certain one that you prefer? Does it matter? So, full disclosure, the only markets I've ever worked on are the ones in London. So, okay, uh, the LSE, London Stock Exchange, mm -hmm. the AIM market, the alternative investment market in London, a little bit on their junior exchange. I think it's called the Plus market, but not mm -hmm. much. And then the exchanges in Canada that I've worked with are the Canadian Securities Exchange, the CSE, the mm -hmm. TSX Venture, the TSX, um, and, and a little bit, uh, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the other one now, on the NEX, mm -hmm. uh, the NDX, a little bit on that. I, I think they're all pretty good to deal with. I think the mm -hmm. TMX ones are obviously, you know, those are our Bentleys uh, and, you know, they're, they're higher profile um and they have really high standards which they, they should and so uh you know obviously you can't just be fast and loose and have you know penny stock you know kind of how street hucksters running mm -hmm. the there they, they you know they have really high standards and their expectations of the, the standards of disclosure both continuous and periodic are really high um, but they're easy to work with. I mean, you can mm -hmm. still pick up the phone and phone them and say, look, I've got this problem. I've got an issuer a client that wants to do X, Y, Z, but your rules say ABC. And, you know, what, what are the, what are the paths? Have you seen this before? Have you, you know, been able to kind of get your head around these things before and they'll work with you. So I think all of them are pretty good that way. Mm -hmm. um, the CSE is great. I, I, I find them to be very responsive and reactive to, um, the change and in, in, in market uh, um, and you know concerns that we have as legal counsel to issuers, they're receptive and responsive. Um, their rules are a little bit more flexible just because it's a newer marketplace and it's becoming established. Mm -hmm. And it's it's not building the airplane as it's flying it, but you know they are as a new market. There are things that it hasn't seen, so it's mm -hmm. making the precedent now. Um, whereas the older, more established exchanges already have, you know, pretty prescriptive rules. So you kind of, it really depends if, if, if the prescriptive rules are supportive, it's a very comfortable place. If they're not, then you're in a tough spot, right? For sure. Whereas if you're at the CSE and there's no rules, uh, then you can kind of help them mold and, and shape that precedent. So yeah, I don't have a preference. I guess is the, the quick. Answer. <laughs> it's the quick, the quick and dirty. Well, that's cool. When, I charge you... by the word. Can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, when did you know you wanted to become a lawyer, and how different was the vision to the reality you actually lived? Great question. Uh, so I wanted to be a lawyer pretty much since my early teens. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was at university uh, back east, I uh, remember vividly that. Uh, it's so funny that I used to, people used to come to me in my dorm room, um, for advice. They will, they would come and, and they would just in informally or ad hoc ask me for advice about, you know, their schoolwork, their relationship, their, you know, their dad was being mean to them. What do they do? 
you know, I've got a professor who doesn't believe my story, but why I missed class? What should I do? How should I say it? And so people, so after a while, even people that were sort of strangers that I didn't even know would come and knock on my door and say, somebody told me you're really good with advice. Can, can you help me? And so it sort of became this weird thing where I sort of had quasi office hours where as a, <laughs> as a 18, 19 year old student, I had people that I didn't even know making appointments to come and see me, um, you, you know, uh, between, um, you know, classes and whatnot. And I just thought it was so hilarious that, that people would really seek me out and really trusted my advice and, and hmm. thought I was very thoughtful and, and thorough about the background and just gave good advice. And that's what really crystallized it. I thought I got to go into a profession. I wanted to be a lawyer when I was young, but I didn't really know what that meant. Mm -hmm. And then realized that you can actually help people and that they, if you give good advice, they go and have better outcomes mm -hmm. in their own lives. And I found that very fulfilling. Um, awesome. and, and do I get everything right all the time? No, heck no. But, uh, but I felt that was very fulfilling. So that's what galvanized it for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's very different in practice to what I thought it was. And I'm, I'm also <laughs> a really weird inflection point where, um, you know, sort of 10 years ago, I was the guy in the data room devouring reams of paper, right? Mm -hmm. Like lots of information and data. And I wanted to learn everything. I wanted to be involved in everything. I wanted to just work through the night and just be a m machine, just, mm -hmm. you know, just moving transactions forward. And now um, I'm at an inflection point where the, 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 I'm not so young anymore. And, and, and the Mike Stevenses that I was 10 years ago are there saying, Hey, get, get out of the way, old guy. Like you brought the work in now let us do it. Right. So I'm okay with that too, but it, it does feel a little bit like, you know, I'm sure like you and your brother, when you brought in people to say, okay, like we can run this division. If you just give us guidance at the top. Right. Mm -hmm. but, but I like having my hands dirty. Well, sorry, but that's what you hired us for. Right. So it's, it's, that's, that's why it's a little bit, it's a lot different now than, than, than what it was 10 years ago. And certainly from what I expected it to be. Sure. Well, Mike, you know, you and I have just a slight bit of gray here, but I'm going to tell you right now, it looks good on both of us. So, uh, you know, wisdom, wisdom looks good on us. Dang, dang straight, dang straight. Well, I, I got a weird question for you. Just, just, and it's weird, but I, I, I really want to know what's the weirdest task that you've ever had to bill for? Okay. Yeah, this is, yeah, I do have one. And this comes out at dinner parties after my third watch all the time. So when I, again, this all happened really, really early on in my career. Um, <laughs> but there was a gentleman uh, who shall remain nameless, who was a, a fabulously wealthy uh, British guy. And he, in order to ensure that he paid an amount of taxes that was appropriate to him, um, <laughs> took up residence in the in the channel islands mm -hmm. um but not technically on either island uh so not not neither jersey nor guernsey uh he resided in the international waters in between the two islands mm. uh on a gigantic yacht sounds convenient it was very convenient for him <laughs> terribly inconvenient for his lawyers uh <laughs> because he had a company that was tax resident in jersey but was incorporated in Guernsey. And so we had to, yeah. And so we had to get on his private jet. Of course. Of course, at London airport, which 
if you, like I bet nobody probably knows about, but there's an airport like literally mm-hmm. right next to the city of London mm-hmm. um, with, you know, small, small airlines and private jets. Anyways, mm-hmm. got on the private jet, flew to Jersey for a board meeting of the Guernsey company that was Jersey tax resident, but it had to be, the board meeting had to be on the yacht. So of course, <laughs> totally. we flew, flew from city airport on a private jet. The air, the pilot was an ex RAF pilot. And the, the guy, the client said, Oh, just, uh, yeah, you do some, do some of the stuff that you know how to do. So we were doing all these aerial maneuvers, things that if I told my wife, we were doing, <laughs> he would kill me. Anyways, he thought it was hilarious. We were doing all these weird aerial maneuvers. The jet was astonishing. Mm-hmm. We land in Jersey, have the most gourmet lunch that I've ever experienced uh, and probably will never experience again. And then onto a helicopter to land on the yacht to have the board meeting. And wow. then get back in the helicopter, back to Jersey, back on the private jet, over to London, and then I got the tube home. <laughs> very good. Very good. Well, that, that's awesome. So are you saying that 1% uh, gets to eat better than the most of us? Is that, is that oh, kind I'm of a... Af- I'm afraid so. I'm afraid so. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so so that was that was my... And we built for that. So that was my one very ex- like a extreme example of things you get to bill for. It would, I wouldn't... Maybe not... I wouldn't categorize that under weird, but mm-hmm. it was certainly unique an adventure definitely yes. an adventure oh mike this is this is so much fun um as, as you know on the afternoon tea you know we get to talk to wonderful people like yourself and you know with the mission of expediting the uh, the journey of uh, younger canadian founders uh, so i have these two questions i always ask and i'm really excited to to hear your response uh the first is can you please share one piece of advice to help younger canadian founders well great one piece i'll be really succinct um believe in yourself I think is a really important one because I think that one of the things I see a lot in Canadians uh, is we're too darn Canadian. I know it sounds like a cliche, but a lot of us are very apologetic about our success and very apologetic about our grandiose dreams and our visions. And we mustn't be. Um, We're every bit as smart and capable as anybody. And, um, you know, we should just believe in ourselves. Uh, And I think that that'll drive people forward to grow and scale and not sell out too quickly, not sell out too early. And, and mm-hmm. uh, then we start to bring, you know, the, the next Amazon will be Canadian. I love that. I guess we can call it the Hudson Bay. Oh, no, that's right. No, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Question number two. Can you yeah. share the name of a Canadian entrepreneurial star or founder that you personally look up to? Can they be brothers? Sure. Well, besides the handsome brothers, well, yeah, if you're talking here. But... I was going to say present company excluded. <laughs> excluded, like, yes. Um, uh, so it's uh, Roham and Sam Garagoslu. Mm. So they're the, the co-founders of um, of Dapper Labs, um, yeah. and uh, they have been so gracious to include me in their journey. Oh, wow. uh, and I just did the math the other day because I had to go get one of their signatures. I don't know if they they'd care if I shared this with you. I, I had to get one of their signatures done, and it involved needing one of their ages. And uh, mm-hmm. and and so I did the math on the age of they that they would have been when they founded the company and it was mm-hmm. like early 20s yeah. and so I thought good grief like that's amazing and so I have a healthy healthy dose of respect for them and the way they operate the, and the way they are as humans mm-hmm. um, and uh, they're a real credit 
to this ecosystem, even though they're not, um, you know, they're not out there uh, at all the events. Uh, they're just quietly, quietly successful and busy building away. But they're very, very proud Canadians and very, very proud Vancouverites. Um, For sure. And, For and sure. And and you know, it's just a personal story of of, of theirs with that, that I've had is with their with their original company Axiom Zen is um, in the very first um, Van Hacks, which is the, the hackathon that uh, I founded, you know, to help out um, um, nonprofits here in Vancouver. Um, their their team went against my team. They came first, okay, and we came second. But you know what? I do this with with complete respect because what they did was they built an amazing application for helping, um, I think it was the Battered, Battered Women's Shelter. I can't remember the exact name, but I mean, awesome group to be to be helping. And the prize was actually, I think it was like $5,000. It, it was a really healthy prize. And not only did they build a great piece of software for them, but they donated the prize to the organization too. And oh. you know what? I got all the time in the world for them after seeing that love. It's just like, that's incredible. You know, that is incredible and it says a lot about them and how they run a company in my mind yeah yeah, uh, yeah that, that's a fantastic uh, example of, of why I've, I've got so much respect for them awesome well Mike thank you so much for joining me today thank you for for you know educating um I've I personally learned a lot I mean I've been learning a lot from you over the years but uh um I know that this is going to be really well received uh from the listeners and uh how, how, how do they, you know, if, they, if they're interested in, in learning more about Faskin, is it just a website and a contact? Website and contact. So Faskin.com. Uh, if you want um, to chat about anything that we've discussed today or, or anything that you, you know, burning question that you want to ask that you didn't get a chance to ask, um, I'm at, um, at Mike at Faskin on Twitter. Uh, also, um, mstevens at Faskin.com if you want to reach out via, via email the old-fashioned way. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. And thanks for, you know, making the Canadian business scene that much more protected and better. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Ahoy, afternoon tea listeners. If you got this far, I assume you like this episode and that is awesome. Thank you. In such a case, please rate and review Afternoon Tea Podcast and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your feeds from. Afternoon Tea is a podcast with a goal to share the stories of Canada's successful tech entrepreneurs in order to prepare the next wave of founders. We do have some great guests lined up for future episodes, but we would love to hear your thoughts too. Please do let us know who you think should be on the show. You can do so by emailing me at podcast at ttt.studio. That is P-O-D-C-A-S-T at TTT, that is three T's, dot studio. You will notice there is no dot com because we are that sophisticated. Furthermore, you can find us at social media at TTT underscore studios. I look forward to chatting with you soon.